came to America when he was six months old. He started as a stock boy at the grocery store. Eventually, he owned it. He turned it into the biggest grocery store chain in New York City. He now owns a real estate company worth over $2 billion. He ran for mayor of New York City. He almost won. You can't make this story up. This is the Cats Roundtable with John Katsimatidis. Everywhere around the world, they come into America. Good morning, New York. This is the Cats Roundtable. John Katsimatidis here. Labor Day weekend. My God, the summer is almost over, or it is over. We have a great show for you today. We have Congressman Peter King, uh, Governor David Patterson, Steve Cates, and What's Up in the Sky, the great Senator Alphonse D'Amato. And let's start the show with Mike Stoller on a real estate report. Good morning. This is Michael Stoller for the Stoller Real Estate Report on the Cats Roundtable. This morning, I have Ronnie Levina, Senior Managing Director for Meridian Capital, one of the largest intermediaries for financing. Ronnie, is there money for real estate financing? You know, especially with the high interest rates so far over there, um, you know, all, all of the difficulties we are out there. Is there really money out there for real estate financing? Yeah, I think that's a, a nuanced question, but generally speaking, there's money and liquidity in the system. But as a general statement, leverage is, is down and pricing is up. So that's the paradigm that we find ourselves in. So I think for high-quality projects, high-quality sponsors, you can get your deals financed, but they're requiring more equity than they used to. And the cost of capital is significantly increased as all the indexes are up. I like to say there's nowhere to hide in the yield curve anymore from so far on the short end of the curve all the way up to the 10-year treasury. Generally speaking, every one of those indexes is above 4%. Um, so, you know, when, when you're adding a spread to that, generally cost of capital is expensive. What about loan to cost? Well, given the interest rate environment that we're in, most lenders look at what they call the exit debt yield or, or how refinanceable that loan is. So really what they're doing is they're stressing the refinance of these deals. So they can only lend you know, a certain amount of money based upon what they think the loan can be refinanced at. So leverage is generally down in the senior mortgage market on a construction loan. That can be anywhere from 40 to 55% loan to cost, uh, depending upon the bank and, and the project. I mean, the good news about the market is, though, there's a lot of um, ways to kind of get additional leverage in the stack through preferred equity or mezzanine financing. So but for it, my novices who are listening to the show, what is preferred equity, mezzanine loans? Sure. I mean, there are various forms of subordinate financing. So if you think about the capital stack, you start out at the base, which is your senior mortgage, and then the most subordinate or the first loss piece is generally your common equity. So what you're doing is filling in between the senior mortgage and the common equity. So mezzanine financing is another form of debt generally secured by a pledge of the partnership interest. So their collateral is really they, they're taking a pledge of the ownership interest in the borrowing entity as opposed to a, a mortgage on the real estate. So they don't have a second mortgage generally. It's not a direct lien on the property. They're really leaning the partnership interest. And preferred equity is, is really a hybrid debt equity product where they're coming in as a partner in the deal, but they have preferred returns um, you know, and then there's some kind of a waterfall in the distributions. And then if you basically have some kind of a default under the preferred equity, they get enhanced control remedies. They can sell the property. They may be able to kick out the sponsor. 
Um, so, you know, but again, these are all add to the cost of the project. So, you know, if you're taking MES or preferred equity, the cost of that capital needs to be put into your, your budget, and it will definitely dilute the returns of the deal. So how much can you get if you put preferred equity and all the other nuances? Look, I mean, we've done deals upwards of 80 85% loan-to-cost financing, but generally when you get up that high, you're giving a participation in the upside of the deal, which means they're, they're, they're going to participate in the equity upside. I think with a straight coupon, meaning they're not participating in the upside, you're probably in the 75 to 80% loan-to-cost range. Um, but every deal is different. It depends on, you know, if somebody owns a piece of land at a great basis and the metrics of the deal work, then, then you may be able to push the leverage higher without having to give any piece of the upside of the deal. Has anyone taken over for the uh, First Republic and the Signature market? Look, Signature and First Republic were, were very significant contributors to the commercial real estate market um, in, in the tri-state region. First Republic actually, you know, nationally. I mean, Signature was actually doing some business in California before they shut down as well. So I think it'll take some time for the amount of deal flow that they had to get digested. Um, I haven't seen anybody step up. Look, the market right now doesn't lend itself to any one bank stepping up to take over, but you've seen... You know, a lot of the signature clients have ended up with, uh, you know, with New York Community Bank or Flagstar from just the migration of, of their deposits. You know, First Republic obviously went over to J.P. Morgan. So you're, you know, but it, the dust hasn't settled yet in the bank market. I think it's going to take another year or two to figure out who are going to be the dominant forces in the kind of the local or regional banking market right now. What's your thoughts about the conversion of office buildings into residential? I think everyone talks about it, and it's a nice soundbite, but the practicality of it is, is, you know, when you look at the floor plates of a lot of these office buildings and the cost that it takes to convert, to me, it's just you need a massive reset in basis for any of this to make sense. So, it, you know, you need to get the building below land basis to make these buildings work. People throw around numbers like $250, $300 a square foot to get the building, you know, the conversion costs are expensive. And the challenge you have with these office buildings is very rarely do you find a vacant building. So you have to basically sit there and carry the building while you lease it down. You have to get vacant possession of the building. And oftentimes you don't know what's behind the walls. Um, so the costs are a little bit harder to project than in a ground up construction deal. That being said, look, there's some, you know, there's some high profile conversions that have been done or are being done downtown. Um, but I don't think that's the answer to the office woes. I think a small percentage of the buildings will be converted, but I think there's got to be a, a different – someone's got to come up with a different alternative use um, as opposed to res, just saying these are all going to be residential. So, you know, we, we don't have the crystal ball like we did on the TV show. <laughs> it, it sounds that there is money for real estate under different terms and conditions – you should be a well-capitalized new borrower as opposed to a new borrower. And I think people with, like Ronnie Levine will help you to get there. And I'd like to thank you for being here today. Thank you, Michael. With us today is former Congressman Peter King. Good morning. Happy Labor Day weekend. Congressman, how are you today? John, I'm, I'm doing great. It is a great Labor Day weekend. I look forward to seeing you uh, tomorrow night on uh, Captain Cosby. But right now it's Sunday and we have a lot of issues to discuss, I think. Uh, yes, we do. I mean, a lot of problems in the world. You live in Nassau County. Tell us what bothers you the most 
that they're trying to change our way of life. Yeah, John, you know, all of us have been observing, you know, the last few months what's happening in Staten Island and Queens, this attempt by the uh, Mayor Adams and the governor, and uh, again, the, you know, the lack of leadership from uh, Joe Biden in Washington to have illegal migrants put into communities. And we've seen it in Staten Island where Curtis is leading the charge and our President Vito Fisello and Congresswoman Nicole Milliotakis. But we're not immune from that challenge out here on Long Island. For instance, in Nassau, uh, you have the, uh, just on the other side of the county line or the city line, is uh, the Creedmoor, where they're putting in an 800-person pen facility for illegal migrants, which is just steps away from Nassau County. And communities like Floral Park, Lakes Manhattan, and New Hyde Park, all of them are very fearful of this coming in. And yet you have, uh, again, 800,000 men who are basically don't have jobs. They can be wandering around. Or in other areas where you have migrants that do have kids entering into the school system. So I'm very pleased. Listen, all of us, I think, have a certain sympathy for the migrants, but you have to have a policy that makes sense. And right now, I think it's very important that Bruce Blakeman, the Nassau County Executive, has said that under no circumstances will Nassau County become a sanctuary county. And under any circumstance, he will fight any attempt, basically you know, uh, putting up a legal wall to keep uh, Mayor Adams or other governor from trying to put any of the migrants into Nassau County. He's going to oppose it. He's committed to that. He says over and over again that Nassau County is not a sanctuary county and will not be. But on Long Island, we often tend to think uh, together about Nassau and Suffolk. So Suffolk County, where we've seen that Mayor Adams wants to put migrants out into the Bresky Airport in the Hamptons. John, you're very familiar with that airport out there, West Hampton. And uh, then you have uh, also uh, these reports that they want to put them into the former Kings Park Psychiatric Facility. And Ed Romain, who is a Republican candidate for a county executive and a longtime friend of mine, is currently the supervisor in the town of Brookhaven, but Ed Romain has said that he will not allow Suffolk County to be a sanctuary county, and he will fight as hard as he can to keep these migrants from being pushed into Suffolk County. This is... You know, people try to say this is a humanitarian issue to, to help these migrants. The fact is, no one is being hurt more than these migrants are. They're being put into communities where they're basically not wanted, where there's no facilities for them. And we've seen what's happened in Manhattan. You walk past the Roosevelt Hotel, and there's hundreds of people outside. The bikes are there. They uh, just are congregating, walking around. We saw some of them went upstate. There were sexual assaults. And it's just a, a reality that... So how how did the people of Nassau County and Suffolk County, whether they're Democrats or whether they're Republicans, aren't they all uh, opposed to just getting invaded like that? Yeah, they are. One of the things we've said about politics the last few years is how divided we are and how the political parties are so divided. But one thing which has brought Republicans and Democrats together in Nassau County and Suffolk County is this opposition to have uh, hundreds of migrants forced onto them. Uh, this is a, uh, a serious issue, not just in a partisan political way, but in the best sense of politics, where the people speak out, the people stand together, and the people vote. And right now, and into the foreseeable future, Nassau County and Suffolk County, Democrats and Republicans, independents, conservatives, they're going to be standing together in opposition to this attempt to uh, voice these migrants into, into Nassau, Suffolk, as we've seen what's been happening in Staten Island. And I think, John, the people who are hurt the most by this are, are the migrants also. How about the people who have been waiting online, the immigrants from Central America and actually all over the world? 
who are waiting in line, who are doing it by the right way, uh, doing it the right way, and, they, and they're being basically jumped over by these uh, uh, illegals who have come across the border. And when like, Governor Hochul says, or Mayor Adams says, that we should give them all working papers, put them to work, well, how about the people who want to get in the country legally to work? And to me, by saying that they're going to get the working papers uh, and, and vet them for jobs, that's going to be an incentive to bring more people across the border. And by the way, I don't blame them. I, if I were living in some of those countries under those conditions, I'd want, uh, want to come across the border too. We, we can't solve all the world's problems. We, as it is, we take in, and rightfully so, more legal immigrants than any other country in the world. John, you and I, uh, actually you are an immigrant. I'm, I, I'm a, uh, a product of an immigrant family. And immigrants, who are, you know, they're the, uh, the lifeline of the country. They put new blood into the country. But it has to be done in a legal, lawful, orderly way for the benefit of everyone, not just the people living here now, but the people coming in as immigrants. Having come in under these conditions now, it's unfair to them. It's certainly unfair to us. And I really commend, uh, for instance, Vito Fisella and Congresswoman uh, Meliotakis for the job that they're doing. Well, Vito is taking Island. a position for Staten Island and uh, Bruce Blakeman's uh, position for Nassau right. County. Steve Ballone is the current executive of, of uh, Suffolk County. I, I, I don't know. I haven't heard about his position. No, we haven't heard much from Steve, Steve Ballone, but I do know, uh, and I haven't heard much from the Democratic candidate for county executive because the current county executive is term limited. But Ed Romaine has made it absolutely clear that he is committed to not making uh, Suffolk County a sanctuary county. Well, and, he has to uh, say it louder so people can hear it, you know? Well, I guess he felt, John, if he was on WABC, that's as loud as you can get. But I agree. He has to yeah. make it more more definite, make it clear to everyone. Uh, because, again, Eric Adams, you know, you and I have been friendly with him. Uh, and I wish him well in certain respects, but on this one, he is entirely wrong. He was wrong to be uh, inviting everyone into New York, going to the Port Authority bus terminal, giving them cell phones, giving them gifts, uh, putting them up in hotels, you know, four-star hotels they're staying in. And now he's trying to force them on other counties around the state. So he's, uh, he's wrong on this. And uh, Governor Hochul has been really too quiet for too long. But the ultimate responsibility is Joe Biden, who basically has created an open border policy. Donald so Trump after, so after um, Labor Day, we're going to find out what the heck is going on. What's going to happen to all these kids, these migrant kids that have not been checked for health going into our schools? John, I saw that happen back in 2014, 2015, uh, when we had the undocumented, uh, unaccompanied minors coming across the border, kids 12, 13, 14 years old. And then they were assigned to schools in places like Central Isop in Brentwood, which had a Central American community. And I showed what it did to those schools. You had kids coming in, they were overwhelming the schools. You had maybe a 13-year-old kid with a first or second grade education, could not speak the language at all. You didn't know anything about their family history, didn't know anything about their psycho- psychological history or medical background. And it, cre- it was a real burden on these school districts, which have a tough time anyway. So, again, it was a lose-lose proposition. And I think you're going to see even more of that when you know, the kids start coming into uh, public schools in New York City. And I know Tish James, the attorney general, she said the schools have no right to keep these kids out. Well, where are they going to get the money for this? Where are they going to get the teachers? I love Tish James, but I think I love Tish James, but I think she's wrong on this one. I mean, we don't want to keep them out. But we, at least they should get a health check. No, I, I, absolutely. Listen, I, I, I'm sorry you have to feel for these kids. I mean, it's terrible coming up here under these conditions anyway. Then they're being put into a school where they're almost 
definitely going to be behind in the schoolwork. They're not going to speak the language. Some of these schools will have to get translated for the kids. And uh, again, they can have psychological histories. They can have medical histories. They can have issues in their family. None of these things are known. And to have that foisted on you know, local schools is going to be a financial burden, a psychological burden. It's going to impede the education of the other kids. And it's, uh, again, something that, you know, people say it's well-intentioned. Well, you know, those intentions can cause very bad results. Congressman King, thank you very much, and God bless you. Have a, a great Labor Day weekend, and, you know, back to work next week, and uh, let's hope uh, the world is better. John, your problem is you're always working, so take Labor Day off. You're always working. <laughs> this is the Catch Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Catch Roundtable. With us today this is Labor Day weekend is Governor David Patterson, and uh, he has many things he wants to talk about. Governor Patterson, bring us up to date. Well, John, I'd like to start out on a positive note and give a shout out to two women elected officials who I think really have distinguished themselves since the last time we talked. One is Governor Hochul, who has now challenged the federal government, who this past Wednesday went to Washington to the White House to seek assistance and has even been critical of this whole idea of how we got to this point in the first place. The other shout out goes to Congress member Nicole Maliotakis, who I think explains the whole situation and how it all happened better than anybody. And she's talking about the fact that had they planned for this uh, prior to sending the migrants, how the Federal Park Service and all the a lot of the service agencies could have prepared for it in the states where the migrants were going to be sent. Instead, they didn't do that. She also points out that these asylum hearings are not going in the favor of the migrants. They're about 50 percent. So if you could calculate that from the very beginning, that would have been a reason not to allow that many people to come in. And I couldn't agree more. So I think both of those women are really addressing the situation. I think you're going to see more of this in other cities and other states, because I have no idea when they plan this, where did they think we would be in September of 2023? Where did they think that, that all these people would go? And uh, Governor Hochul, I said the other day on the radio uh, that uh, I commend Governor Hochul because uh, Mayor Adams says, well, well, why don't you move these people out of the city to one of the other counties? And Governor Hochul uh, refused. And we had a lot of county leaders or county uh, chairman or executives like uh, Bruce Blakeman that said, no way in uh, Nassau County and uh, Suffolk County. The joke I told is, you know, uh, uh, they wanted to move him into West Hampton Airport, and I, I sleep with one gun underneath my pillow because I live in a beach house. I said, now I have to live, sit with two guns underneath my belt. Well, fortunately, John, most of the migrants, I think, are not coming here armed or are they necessarily criminals. They're very much like our ancestors, many of them, uh, not really mine, but <laughs> who came here with with very little and were able to, to earn a living. But the, the problem is that we're coming up on the beginning of the school year, and uh, we've already heard that there's a rise in COVID-19 cases and a number of different diseases that continue to uh, kind of hinder our progress. And normally, you know, when, when 
when you would think that we would be testing the young people because all of them are going to wind up in school somewhere, and that's going to be even more of a disaster. Uh, there's, but, you know, all we want, look, we believe in immigration, all of us, but it's checks and balances, and we just, uh, we don't want those kids going to school with, with, uh, with, with our kids if uh, they haven't been checked for diseases. And this is one of those situations, John, where ideologically, probably, if it, there was a safe way to do this, I think the overwhelming number of people to have a lot of sympathy for some of the countries that these migrants are immigrating from and some of the dictatorships and the drastic measures that are taken against individuals, the drug cartels and the whole thing. But as is always the case, you can only be as helpful as your means allow. And what we've basically done is we have oversaturated certain parts of the country with this migration. And while no one wishes ill on the people who are coming here, it's overcrowding the system. And what I was thinking about, and I'm talking to people about this, is since so many migrants were coming, if they, instead of just doing it haphazardly and suddenly after the expiration of Title 42, what they also failed to do was to think about what the migrants would do what they'd get here. So what if they sent some money to set up programs to train people in some of the skilled areas that they would need? I mean, they wouldn't go to the Board of Education, which is short teachers, but they could go to a lot of the trade industries and get jobs there so that when they got here, they might even have a chance to find a place to live. That certainly makes common sense. Uh, the other one that I suggested to uh, Mayor Adams uh, uh, is the fact if you put everybody on Rikers Island and vetted them like they did Ellis Island, and I, I, I even said, why don't we name, change the name of Rikers Island to Ellis Island 2? So you vet everybody there. You make sure they don't have any diseases. You make sure they're not terrorists. You make sure they're not drug dealers. And you let them out to society individually instead of just putting them on the streets of New York. John, that's brilliant. Near the turn of the last century into the 1900s, during that period of time, 1.3 million people came through Ellis Island. But the difference between now and then is the jobs were already available. They had planned to allow the immigration during that particular time. And that's why when you hear people talk about going through Ellis Island, I mean, it may have been tough when they first got here, finding work and that sort of thing, but it wasn't near the catastrophe that we're living with. And it's a self-inflicted wound um, issued by the federal government who has yet to explain why they would do this in the first place without any real means of giving these people a chance. It's as much of a disservice to the immigrants themselves as it is to the population that they're moving into. The other day, uh, Governor, uh, uh, Nicole Mayotakis made a, uh, a theoretically uh, allegation that the minute we give some of these migrants work permits, then under the theory that the, the city council voted for it already, they'll also be entitled to vote in city elections. Is that why uh, Eric Adams is pushing No, to give work I, permits? You know, I mean, um, that has to be straightened out. Immigrants were allowed to vote in 22 states back during the same time uh, in the beginning of the, of the 20th century. But it's been kind of established 
that you've got to become a citizen of the United States to vote. That's the only way it's going to happen, except in school board elections, you know, community sort of situations like that. That's probably some interpretation of some legal eagle that wants to (laughs) try to make it appear that you can get around that. But you've got to be a citizen of the United States to vote. I I am all for that, and I stand stand for that. And uh, Governor Patterson, we got a minute left. Anything else you want to tell people? Well, I just think that Mayor Adams has held up pretty well. He's gone through a lot of criticism, but he has criticized the federal government. He's even criticized the state. He got himself kicked off the president's reelection campaign committee. But I think that uh, people want Mayor Adams to tell the president to shut down the border. Now, when you're a mayor of a city and you're telling the president of a country what to do, you'll get more than just being kicked off a campaign committee. So if you're a Republican, well, you, you saw what happened. To, you saw what happened to Governor Cuomo when all of a sudden the White House didn't like him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, that could happen to Mayor Adams as well. So, so just to summarize, it's just that talk radio listeners and, and hosts can talk about that because there's no ramifications. So I don't think they should be goading Eric Adams into another fight where he and the city could get hurt. God bless you. Have a great uh, Labor Day weekend, and we'll talk again real soon. Thank you, Governor. Thank you, John. Always good to talk to you. With us today, this Labor Day weekend, is Steve Cates, otherwise known as Dr. Sky. He always brightens up on Sundays by making our minds wander. Well, Steve, tell us what's going on this weekend. Well, good morning, John, and good morning to the listeners as we move into the holiday weekend. Let's talk a little bit about how old the universe really is. Now, we thought we answered this question a long time ago here on the Cats Roundtable, but new revelations, John, as they continually come in, doubt that the universe might be 13.77 billion years old. Some astronomers are now saying it might be double that age, over 26 billion years, and here's why. There's something called the impossible galaxy problem. What's that? The amazing James Webb Telescope, John, is taking some amazing images, and it's actually imaging these galaxies near the dawn of creation. But as they look at them, they're more evolved than they should be. In other words, they're way older in evolution than they should be at that distance. So astronomers are now saying, wait a minute, maybe we ought to put the brakes on the whole cosmology, the creation of the universe theory. And there's another star out there called the Methuselah star, you know, after the you know, amazing ancient Methuselah who lived supposedly 969 years, this star is thought to be over 14 or 16 billion years old. How did it form? So the whole amazing, you know, the basis here, John, is is our whole basis of cosmology wrong? This is totally incredible, and I think it opens up our minds to all other possibilities, don't you think? Well, my, my thoughts are it could be 100 billion years old. It could be something in our minds that we cannot imagine. Eternity. Absolutely. I don't think you can. Uh, we're not capable yeah. of imagining the word eternity. True, you're right. Our minds are limited in what we can learn, but we continue to learn, and it's just an amazing story to report. But our mystery of the week also goes along the same lines, John. There's something called the Hubble tension. It's something that they talked about a long time ago. It has to do with the expansion of the universe. There's something called the Hubble constant meaning how far some objects are in space, there's a certain amount of speed that they're receding. Well, now astronomers are even having doubts about that. They're saying that the old number, which was a complicated number, 42 miles per second for every 3.26 million light years, or we call 3.26 million parsecs. Now they're saying the speed may be more, but we know from previous interviews and discussions here on the CATS Roundtable, 
that we've talked about this whole thing called dark energy. So again, John, we've just find ourselves in a more amazing universe every single day where our minds are obviously more open than ever. And hopefully everybody listening is open to those possibilities because it's amazing. And as you said, how do we get our minds around something called infinity or even something like that? It's really just mind-boggling to put it to the Steve, uh, simplest way we can talk about Steve, it. Steve, that's why I was a Gene Roddenberry fan and a Star Trek fan because it made our minds uh, expand. And it's scary. It is scary how uh, much of the uh, the products uh, that uh, – they talked about on Star Trek we got to use the flip phone, for instance, that Captain yeah. Kirk had. Now, all of a sudden, the, the Chinese have landed on Mars. Uh, the Indians uh, in, from India landed on uh, Moon. Uh, tell us about yes. the uh, Chinese. How are they doing? Well, John, they're Chang'e 4, the spacecraft, which is even more incredible. Nobody's ever landed on the far side of the moon. They did it. And their little rover that came out of it called U-2-2, that little rover is still experiencing, you know, an on and off lifestyle because it's dependent on the solar radiation, meaning it has to be in sunlight. So their landing on the moon in 2019 is the most amazing thing because nobody in this planet, as far as a nation, has ever done that on the far side of the moon. But what the Indians just did, as we talked about last week, they moved and landed there in an area where there's going to be lots of exploration to the South Pole of the moon for one major reason. We know that there's a lot of mineral resources there that could theoretically be mined. There's water ice, and it's also a great place. This is not a new revelation by me on your show, but there's a new area on that area of the moon, the South Pole of the Moon, where we can actually harvest and process fuel like methane and other needed fuels to go beyond the moon or back and forth from the moon and then on to Mars. So, John, the whole thing looks very promising for space exploration and our study and understanding of the universe. And what do we always remind people? Always remember what? To keep your eyes to the skies, your feet on the ground, and check more about what we have to offer at wabcradio.com with our Dr. Sky experience with the interviews that people tell me they really do enjoy on the current happenings and all these subjects that we talk about. As always, John, a privilege and honor to be part of the Cats Roundtable. It's a privilege to be here, John. Thank you, Steve Cates. And uh, I'm looking forward to more discussions every Sunday. And, and like I said, anytime you have any breaking news... Please text me. We'll be in touch. Have a good weekend and a holiday weekend to everybody. The best of the holiday weekend. Happy Thanks. Labor Day weekend. This is the Catch Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Catch Roundtable. With us today is uh, Senator Alphonse D'Amato, one of the greatest senators New York has ever had. Senator D'Amato, good morning on Labor Day weekend. Tell us, where the heck is our country? We're, we're going into the fall now. Where are we? What keeps you up at night? Huh. I'm worried about uh, our country. Our allies don't trust us anymore. It starts with Joe Biden's leaving Afghanistan the way he did. And, you know, in this past week, we saw the past 10 days, the parents of the kids who were killed there, the troops who were killed there, the 12, they got no answers. The president deceived the American people. He said the military said to leave. They never said to leave, not the, not that way. They, you know, they, his generals have said since then, his generals have said since then, we advised him not to do it the way he wanted to do it. That's right. So he deceived the American people. Uh, to, in plain English, he lied. He lied. 
He blamed it on his advisors. He blamed it on the military, saying that the the generals, et cetera, said to get out. They did not, and they did not advise him to leave that way. He was dishonest with the American people. And that dishonesty continues. It continues right through his administration. And his border policy is a total disgrace. And I have to tell you, I don't care if you're a Democrat, an ultra-liberal, you've got to be a jack not to, to get up and say, stop this incredible immigration policy, which is not a policy, an open border policy. That's what it is, open borders. Anybody can come in. This is amazing. The crooks are coming in. The thieves are coming in. The drugs are coming in. Our kids and families are being ravaged as a result of this. The spies are coming in. They got more Chinese now coming in. How many of those Chinese people seeking asylum do you think that the Chinese government is sending over here so that they can spy on us? This is incredible. Well, I've said that to Admiral Stavridis the other day. I said, our country is under attack in so many directions, and and a lot of our Americans are not smart enough to realize it. Our universities are under attack. Our schools are under attack. Our borders are under attack. I mean, the question is, is it it the Russians, the Chinese? You tell me. It is. This administration's failure to adhere to basic principles of law. That's what's taken place. And let me tell you something. Old Sleepy Joe, I mean, he was so busy that the governor of New York comes to see him and he can't, doesn't have the time to see her. Really? What, what, did he have to take a nap? What was so busy that he couldn't take out 10 or 15 or 20 minutes to meet with the governor? Why? Because she wanted to talk about the immigration crisis and the impact it is having on our state, on the city of New York, which is going to cost them about $5 billion. I mean, where's that money going to come from? The state is in, in desperate shape now. And this guy doesn't have the time to meet with her? Are we kidding? This, this is incredible. Now, this is a Democrat a governor who has supported him, and he can't take the time out to meet with her? Sleepy Joe. But, yeah, oh, you, you can travel around the world with your son, Hunter, making deals with him, making tens of millions of dollars for your family. That you can do. And the people of the United States, you, you're going to vote for this guy again? And the Democratic Party, you got, you got the nerve to endorse him again? What the hell is going on with this country? The the Democratic uh, Party or the Republican Party, I think the polls were 80 percent. They don't want Joe Biden to run again. I think the Democratic Party was 70 percent. They don't want them to run again. So between 70 and 80 percent of the American people don't want Joe Biden to run for another term. That was it. And he was your best man at your wedding. Well, he wasn't the best man, but he came to my wedding. And that was after I left the Senate. He came to the House dedication, and Joe Biden has showed, showed its true self. You've got to understand, when he was a senator, he was a moderate, okay? Because that basically is the composition of the voters of Delaware. They're moderates, okay? 
They're not ultra-liberals. They're not ultra-conservatives. And he took a moderate position. But now that he became president, the true Joe Biden has come out, all right? He's an ultra-liberal. Open borders. Let everybody do whatever uh, they want. Alphonse, I have to correct you. Even liberals don't like what he's doing because it's hurting our country. Well, I, I hope they wake up. I think there's a good chance that at the end they pull the plug on him. The only reason he's staying in there is to protect Hunter, all right? And they have what they've done to the Justice Department. What kind of Justice Department looks the other way? What kind of Justice Department lets the statute of limitations run out on his son, okay, so that they can't prosecute him for a whole load of things, and they continue this farce? What kind of Justice Department goes after people who want to pursue criminals, and and they make them outcasts? They they shift their jobs. They shut them down. And, And that's what you see taking place. So we have an attorney general who is absolutely, he, he's a criminal. He's helped cover up these crimes. And, 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 and we have an FBI that once we looked at with such great favor that now we look at and say, who are they working for? They're working for the attorney general of the United States. And, and I have urged FBI people to stand up and say, when something is wrong, stand up, get fired if they want to fire you. But at least you tell the American people the truth. Well, we're in a bad way. And let me tell you, our allies have lost faith in us. They don't trust us. Senator, we're out of time. I want to thank you and have a great Labor Day weekend. Let's pray for America. Let's pray for our people. And we'll talk again uh, next week. You got it, John. Good being with you. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Cats Roundtable. And uh, stay tuned. You're, we're going to be right. listening to Rebecca Seawright. Is she on yet? Yep, she Rebecca just came Seawright on. Rebecca yep. Seawright represents the east side of the city of New York, uh, of Manhattan. Yep, Assemblywoman. And she was looking in the 5G antennas. The 5G antennas are supposed to be at least 1,550 feet away from human beings. And they're right on Madison Avenue killing the people on Fifth Avenue. You know, are they saying kill, kill the capitalists? What do you say, Governor uh, Patterson? Uh, if it's on Fifth Avenue or Madison Avenue, it sounds very dangerous. As, as much Rebecca as Seawright, give us your opinion. What the heck is going on? Well, thank you, John, for uh, yes. having me on today. You know, I've introduced legislation uh, that would call for a commission uh, to study the health and environmental impacts of exposure to the wireless radio frequency radiation, assess the short and long-term health and environmental impacts of exposure to the 5G technology, receive testimony from the scientific community, the medical community, a wireless technology industry, as well as other organizations and members. Community Board 8 on the Upper East Side passed a resolution Against these 5G towers, I was contacted by a constituent with a new baby. They had installed a tower right outside the nursery window, and my office successfully got that removed because it violated all kinds of rules and regulations. But the answer is we must put a moratorium on this now. The FCC has done it. 
for historic districts, so no new towers in twenty. Rebecca, what is the name of the company that's putting these towers up, and who who are they paying, and who are they lobbying? It's New York City has a contract with a company, and I think you know we've talked about this before. We have to uh, look in to following the money trail behind these contracts. I've talked to the mayor, Adams, about it, and uh, we need to dive in really deep. But the urgency now is to stop these towers from being built. And unless you're uh, a historic district, you could have a tower, more than one, in your neighborhood, right outside your window. Well, Governor Patterson wants to say yeah. something. Yeah, and, and everybody, we're talking to Assemblywoman Rebecca Seawright. Bravo, bravo. This is Rita. We're fighting uh, for no 5G antennas on Fifth Avenue or anywhere within, uh, what, Five city blocks or four city blocks yeah, away it's from crazy. human beings. Bravo. I love you, Rebecca. You know, I'm so happy to have you here. Here is Governor Patterson. Uh, Assemblyman, I was wondering if your research on this issue indicates how much of a test has there been on these types of products before they're put into the market. And then you have to live in an historic district to stop them from being in your neighborhood. That's a that's a really kind of a a. a there aren't that many historic districts. I'll put it that way. And so my my question is, to what extent have they been able to go to the Public Service Commission or anywhere and get this validated? Well, New Hampshire came out with a wonderful study, and I think that's what we're looking to replicate here in New York State. And uh, with your experience, Governor Patterson, you know that these commissions and studies can produce wonderful results. And the data shows that it's harmful to the environment and harmful to the health. Well, that's terrific. Then we need to get that message we out. we got to get that message out. And you let them, them know that there's going to be a lot of investigations coming up on uh, uh, who's paying who and, and uh, who's accepting the money for to, to hurt the citizens of New York City. Yeah, give us the names, Rebecca, too. If you want to, we'll call them we'll out. We'll track down. We're going to buy a full page in the New York Post and put their names down. Hey, we love that. Rebecca, thank you. We love having thank you, you on. Rebecca. And I heard you had yeah. a great party yesterday. And you didn't invite me and Rita. Oh, yeah, I didn't go either. But I, I did see Rebecca a couple of weeks ago. But, yeah, you're right. Where were you without without us? How could it be a party, Rebecca? It's not a party without you, Rita and John and, and Governor Patterson. And it's always great to see you. And uh, thank you. We have to support Senator Lanza's bill, which would prohibit the placement of these 5G towers within 250 feet from a business or a resident in New York City with a population of one million or more. We've got to support my bill that calls for a commission similar to the state of New Hampshire. I can't thank you enough. We have to get the message out and the word out loud and clear. This is a danger to our health and to the environment. Bravo. Thank Thank you. you so much. The automobile industry, a lot of transition going on. With us today is uh, Bob Lutz, and Bob is a Swiss and American uh, automobile executive for many, many years. Uh, he uh, has worked with all three automobile companies. Uh, he was executive vice president and board member of the Ford Motor Company. Uh, he was uh, a vice chairman and board member of the Chrysler Corporation and a vice chairman of General Motors. Mr. Lutz, um, we're talking about the future of automobiles. Are we ever going to have a flying automobile like we used to watch in the Jetsons show? I don't think so. Too many problems, and 
with today's technology, the dangers of people flying around would be just too great, even even if they're fully autonomous. So I don't think we have to worry about flying cars for another 20 years or so. Well, if 20 years, I hope I live that long, but uh, we used to watch it in the uh, cartoons in the early days. Uh, it yeah. seems right. It seems now that uh, the government has decided they should go towards the automobile industry, towards electric vehicles. And I, I know the Toyota chairman has said that, that Toyota is going to continue to make all four. They're going to continue to make uh, gas-powered, uh, electric-powered, uh, hyper-powered, and diesel because they want their consumer to make the decisions. The Ford company has said that they are going to go to a combination gasoline and electric versus all electric. How do you feel the automobile industry should handle this over the next five, ten years? Well, the automobile industry has to obey government regulation, whether that's in Europe, China, or the United States. And the government fuel economy rules, in Europe they're called CO2 CO2 emission rules, but it amounts to the same thing, are such that they basically cannot be met without broad-scale electrification. So what we're seeing is electrification that could occur naturally because there's a lot to be said for electric vehicles, but right now it's being forced by governments for environmental reasons. I, I used to know a few of the CEOs. I knew... Uh... Uh, Lee Iacocca in the Chrysler days, and uh, who do you think is the best CEO of all the three companies now? As I look back, I wrote a book on this called Icons and Idiots, which basically describes the many strange personalities that I've worked for. And Lee Iacocca was a controversial personality, very autocratic, but also highly intelligent and very action-oriented. And I would have to say, despite all his faults, Lee Iacocca was probably the best, the best CEO I worked for. And um, uh, do you dare say who the worst was? Well, there have been some bad ones, but all I can say is read my book and you'll find out. Tell us about your book so we can get people to read it. Yeah, it's called Icons and Idiots. It was first published about two or three years ago. No, a little more than that, about ten years ago. But it's still available. And, and uh, it's Icons and Idiots uh, by Bob Lutz, and I'm sure it's available on right, Amazon and Barnes & Noble? Absolutely. Now, do you know at all uh, Mary Barra at General Motors? Oh, sure. I know, her very, I know her well. She used to work for me. Is she a good CEO? She's an excellent CEO. She's uh, not a highly visible CEO, and uh, she's very team-oriented, but she makes sure she gets what she wants. And she's been e extremely successful so far in leading General Motors. There can be no argument about that. The company is producing excellent products and is uh, extremely profitable, which is the purpose of any automobile company. So I'd have to give her high marks. I never worked for her again. She was under me by a couple of layers when I was there, but she's doing a good job. Now, the government has said, we want you to make electric vehicles by a certain date. Do you think our uh, country is ready to do it by that date? Well, the government thinks so, but I don't think we have enough electricity generating infrastructure. And I don't think 
I, I think what's happening here is the regulation is way ahead of the public. The American public is not ready for the broad adoption of electric vehicles. This is John Katz from TV's. If you want to hear the full interview, go to WABCRadio.com. Thank you for being with us for the Cats Roundtable Local Edition, the number one show on Sunday mornings in New York. Keep listening to us for the Cats Roundtable National Edition between 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock. So we'll be back to you in a few minutes after the news.